0: Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Hey, can you guys hear me okay?
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, awesome connor do
0: you want to take
1: it away or how do how do we want to run this yeah uh so this is aggie investment club the room's pretty full we want to hear about your pathway to ceo um you have some notable things that we want to hear about and uh yeah any advice would be appreciated so thank you awesome yeah well first off uh, i really appreciate all of you guys coming out
0: obviously it's uh what is it a tuesday <laughs> fun tuesday evening i'm sure you guys have uh a lot of stuff to do finals to get ready for hopefully uh enjoy your break coming up um hope you all hopefully all you had a, a great thanksgiving i think just to start out i'd love to hear just get a sense of like who here is like a freshman sophomore like what's the what does it look like so how many of you how do you are freshmen right now oh a lot wow okay how many are sophomores juniors Seniors, it seems like there's more, it seems like there's like more. Okay. So <laughs> a, lot, a lot of like, uh, freshmen and sophomores, which is actually really great to see, because I think one of the things I'll, I'll talk about tonight, um, several times is time and like how knowing earlier, you know, earlier on what you want to do is actually a huge advantage. And, you know, a lot of people we talk to that aren't where they want to be, uh, in, in certain careers. Oftentimes it's because they find out late what they're passionate about. Are they junior or senior year? They're like, you know what? I'm really into this financing. I'm really into this uh, investment banking, equity research, whatever, whatever it is. And by that point, it's really hard to build the right profile to kind of get into those careers, at least, you know, right out of school. So, um, how many of you, so this is the investment club, right, Connor? So it's, this is like, are more people in here kind of going for asset management? investment
1: banking like what's the what's the profile would you say uh it's pretty diverse uh I I don't know I guess raise the hands again if you can yeah like investment it. banking a few okay
0: uh asset management hedge funds sort of <laughs> okay so it's a pretty good mix but like point being did I miss any any of them that are like obvious no equity research BC maybe. <laughs> Anyways, private equity probably is a big one, right? Everyone's like, yeah. Um point being, you know, I think a lot of you are still super young. Um, you'll hear a lot of people tell you, you have time, explore, you know, what you want to do. I think um in terms of how this would this would be most helpful, maybe we can talk a little bit about like just demystifying the the process of like at least just looking at like high finance careers, investment banking. And understanding what your competition looks like. I know, you know, you guys are at AM, you got U Texas, uh, not too far away. That's, you know, good business school it has a lot of competition. You got rice close by. So like there's a lot of competition for a pretty limited number of jobs. And so, you know, when you're talking at like high finance and all this stuff, I think it's really important to know that like knowing what you want earlier actually is an advantage. Um, so that you can start actually building a network and building the interview skills and the, and the finance knowledge that you can actually perform in the interviews, because there, there's going to be enough kids that know freshman and sophomore year, what they want to do, that if you're not uh, putting in that prep work, then it's going to be really tough to outcompete them, at least at the highest levels. Now, also in, in terms of my background, it's a little bit different. I started out, um, I grew up, um, right, right North of Boston and I ended up, um, going to a Williams College, a liberal arts college, tiny up in Western Mass, ended up going to Rothschild and restructuring. But for me, this was back in like a long time ago. There was no Wall Street Oasis. There was no breaking into Wall Street. There was none of these prep courses or anything. So you basically, um, the only way I heard about investment banking was just from fellow students. So they were like, oh yeah, you should go to investment banking. I'm like, why? They're like, it pays you 70,000, right? <laughs> and then back then that was like, you know, they've of into hundred now, right? So it was like, what? Like they pay you that much? It's like, yeah, they work you to the bone. I'm like, I don't care. I work I can work hard. And so, you know, I was excited to do it. I went into it. I ended up um probably being overconfident in terms of how well I could interview, going in, got blown out a, a couple of times, made it to a final round at Goldman Sachs, thinking, Oh, okay, I'm gonna get this. Boom, got nailed. Oh, but they told me that, you know, I was a li- I was a liberal arts student. They weren't gonna ask me any accounting or finance questions. They didn't care. They were asking me to walk them through a DCF and I just on my face. And so I think that whole process was pretty kind of instructive in terms of like later on me realizing like there is a pretty big gap in terms of knowledge from like the Whartons of the world all the way down to like the non-targets, like the small liberal arts colleges to like maybe the Texas A&M grad who isn't kind of, you guys aren't privy and the career center that you guys are around probably isn't pushing you so much into these roles as like a place like the top business schools are. Um, maybe they are, maybe there's only consulting. Connor, what would you say? Like, is it? Management consulting and like
1: IB or is it like more like asset management? Um uh, yeah, asset management. We don't place well in New York. Uh obviously, I mean we're starting to break in. Aggie network's pretty strong. Uh, but other than that, we're, we're pretty target, we're a pretty good target for Houston. Uh yeah. proximity, but UT beats us out.
0: yeah, oil and gas That's is big, obviously they're down there. But in terms of like trying to get to New York, it'll get easier for Aggies if a few of you break in, because then you can kind of pull people up, right? So if a few seniors break in this year, and then you know five the next year, then seven the next year, it starts becoming easier and easier. But if it's if it's like continually like zero or one, it, it's it's tough. Um, and so I think in terms of trying to increase that representation and and help your school, obviously, um, you want to help each other because even if you end up at middle markets in New York, lower middle markets, it's going to help all of you um, in the long run, kind of having that network up there. Um, so in terms of uh, just my story though, it's it's really not that interesting, Connor, <laughs> to bring it to you guys. I worked, uh, I, you know, I basically um, struck out at a bunch of interviews. This was, uh, I was graduating at 02 during the, uh, right after 9-11, um, you know, huge, weird, kind of hurtling into a recession. So it was a pretty bad time to graduate, kind of similar to now. Um, and in terms of like job prospects, it went from, like fifty banks visiting on campus down to like ten. And I remember Rothschild was like one of my last interviews. And I remember distinctly because it was like back then it wasn't like two years in advance. It was like a year in advance. <laughs> and so basically, like I had this interview and um was forced to like not beg for the job, but basically let them know, like, I am ready to outwork any like I am I really want this job. I understand what it is. But by that point, I had been, you know, I'd struck out like 10 times and really more like 30 times I'd had so many interviews. You become almost like really good at at delivering your message, really good at like knowing what you want to say to whatever question they're going to ask you. In fact, you do so many interviews that about halfway through the question, you already know what they're asking. You already know what story you're mapping to. So basically like to get to these jobs, like to be able to, to land these, you have to be that level proficiency in your interviews. You can't be like, oh, let me think of the story. Let me think of a time right now. No, you have to have put in that prep before to be able to be polished enough so that they're they're impressed enough with you. And they think, okay, wow, this person's really ready. They really understand the job. They're asking good questions, that type of stuff. So I wasn't that until probably the end of the recruiting cycle. And I got lucky enough that I did get an analyst offer at Rothschild in New York. Um, I ended up working in the restructuring group, which was booming, as you can imagine, from 02 to 04, since everyone was going out of business, going bankrupt. And so, restructuring, for those of you who don't know, is where you help distressed companies either file for Chapter 11 or an out of court restructuring. Point is, I was a liberal arts major, drowning every day, working 90 hours a week, didn't know what I was doing. I had no accounting and finance like you guys did. <laughs> I literally had economics and was like, had the two weeks of training, be like, okay, here's what, uh, you know, Here's what working capital is and here's what a financial statement is. So it was it was really tough. I was, you know, alongside Wharton majors and and trying to get up to speed. Luckily, I was able to do it um to the point where the the reward for being good at your job and doing and working long hours is that they put you on the deal on more live deals, which gets you even busier. So um, you know, the pay was good. It wasn't anything crazy back then. I was it was like, you know, sixty thousand base and like thirty thousand bonus for my first year and then I think, like seventy thousand based and like fifty five thousand or sixty thousand um, for the second year. So it was like you know, pretty good for back then, uh, but nothing, nothing crazy. I think now the pay for for junior bankers has actually rocketed up since uh, since Covid because they're having a really tough time retaining you guys, because I think I think this generation, your generation is is much more attuned to like, hey, wait a second. We're not going to just sacrifice our entire life for our job. And I think it's good. I think it's it's what the banks need to see and they're losing people fast. So they've become like, they're trying to throw money at the problem, but at least you're getting compensated in some way for the sacrifice that you're getting. Um, back to my story. Did Rothschild two years. Uh, was really um, kind of suffering like in terms of like in the 90-hour weeks, the sleep deprivation. Uh, wanted to get out. One of my fellow Analyst kind of took me aside. It was like, "You want to go to private equity? It's the promised land." He basically like put his hand up like this. Not just kidding. He didn't do that, <laughs> but he was um, he was like, "You really want to go to this?" And I'm like, "Well, why? Like, what's the difference?" And, you know, he had explained to me, "Okay, this is where you actually buy companies and you sell them three to five years later. Look, like the fund gets something called carry. That's you know huge upside if you can get into one of these seats. It's it's an amazing place to be, and you learn a lot. You um, get to work with really smart people. You get to buy, you know." be working with management teams of these uh, these larger companies and so um, i ended up interviewing for a bunch of places ended up getting placed at a fund in boston and then i was like riding high i'm like gave my notice i'm like i'm done i can't handle it and they're like the thing that struck me with my vp when i told them i was leaving rothschild he was like okay how much (laughs) and i'm like no Basically, I, I knew I, it would have been like five million dollars. I like, I like nothing, like nothing, because I was just already just burnt. Like I knew I couldn't really continue at that pace, um, no matter what mm-hmm. amount of money they threw at me. So I think um, it was good I got out when I did. Now, you know, warning to everybody, I probably didn't do the diligence that I needed to do on the specific fund I was joining. It was just like, oh, it's private equity, I'm in. And then turns out, you know, three months after joining, I get get called into the room, which I think is my first bonus. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm now making, you know, whatever 100 base, and I'm gonna get like this stub bonus of like 50,000. Come in, and they're like, we don't think it's working out. We're gonna let you go. That's my first. That's within three months of getting hired. And so it was a it was a pretty rough. uh, It was a rough period for me, and it's kind of like I was 24. I was young. It was like. I was still pretty early in my career i felt like i had some confidence from succeeding at rothschild and being a top analyst there but that was like i was very confused i was like well what do you guys mean what's going on and uh they're like well you can sign this paper and go basically go away here's ten thousand dollars to go away but we think your fit is better for investment banking and to me i'm like what are you talking about like what is go- like what's happening here and so like I basically was like no i'm very stubborn i was like no i'm not gonna, i'm gonna sign this pay i don't need the ten thousand dollars like they can just go shove it right and so <laughs> um basically i was like no i'm not gonna do that because the whole the whole contract is all about like making sure you can't say anything or do anything and i was like well i don't know what you guys are gonna say when i'm re-recruiting so words wise, this not, wasn't necessarily the right move um looking back it worked out but what ended up happening was i got fired they were like, okay, you can work, work here through January or whatever, um, and you know, make it look like you're working here. But I started interviewing for all these other private equity jobs in Boston, kept getting to final rounds. Cause at that point I was a really good interviewer because I'd done so many of them. <laughs> so I was getting to final rounds. It was it was almost like the recruiters, were like, okay, you got some locked up, it's all done and dusted. I'm just gonna talk. You know, they're doing the reference checks, they do the reference checks, off or gone. Right. So the problem with not signing the piece of paper is that the the former private the private equity fund that fired me basically all they could say was yes he worked here right yes he worked here so isn't that kind of scary like the other funds would be like what do you mean yeah yeah here are the dates he worked and no comment like what what else are they going to say right so um that's a huge red flag and so i ended up getting like three final rounds in boston by the time my third offer was pulled, my recruiter basically said, one of the recruiters was working with me basically said, I don't know what's going on. And he's like, you're like blackballed from private equity in Boston <laughs> or something. <laughs> and so it was basically because, you know, I didn't have anyone kind of vouching for me or or like going to bat for me um, that knew my, my work ethic. So I ended up talking to some people, for uh, former analyst, luckily I talked to one of my, um, uh, former analyst at Rothschild. And he was like, well, you know what? We have an associate position here. And it was back in New York. And I'm from Boston. I wanted to be in Boston. I'm like, okay, let me just interview it. My, my career is like derailed at this point. I'm like two months unemployed. I'm like, I need to just take whatever I can get at this point. So I go back. I interview there. It goes well. He vouches for me. They're like, why did they fire this guy? I'm like He's like, I don't know, but he works hard. He'll be fine. And so they hired me. I ended up getting higher pay than I was <laughs> at the other place, but I did have to go back to New York, which wasn't what I wanted to do. But anyways. Moved back there, worked for three and a half years. Applied to Wharton, got my MBA. Um, fast forward, it went great. Like I got a a, a bunch of deals under my belt um, in PE at the time. Like within the first six months of starting at Tailwind, that the new PE fund, I was still kind of like shaken up by the whole experience with the previous PE fund, which is really one of the reasons I started looking at building something on the side to kind of protect myself. And so I think after reading like some Forbes 30 under 30 article and being like, wait a second, all these businesses are kind of like, not that impressive. This None of these are Googles. None of these are like that impressive. Why can't I, why can't I start something else on the side too? And, and so really the only thing I knew at that point was investment banking. And the only thing I really knew was like, I had a friend at MIT that was like much smarter than me that could put a website together. So I was like, why don't we have a place where like people trying to break into investment banking or people trying to break into high finance can like come in chat and like just, you know, have a place online. This was back in 06, so it's a long time ago. <laughs> Probably when some of you guys were like born. Um and so point point being is it, it was it was one of those things where um never I never like had no plan on like monetization. I was like, "Oh yeah, we'll have some ads and whatever." But I did know I wanted to make it fun. So that's why the monkeys were all over the place. And that's why we've, we've always had the monkey theme in the, in the site. And I didn't want it to be like a boring Wall Street Journal site like it, or, or something like that or a business insider, like just articles. And so um, it grew and grew and grew, not fast, slow and steady. And I kept working my private equity job. But by the time I applied to Wharton and went there, I already knew I wanted to be doing that um, full time. And so I didn't even recruit to go back to private equity. I just worked on my business. And yeah, and since uh, 2010, I graduated from my MBA, went to Argentina for a year, traveled all around the world, ran my business remotely. And I, I still, to this day, you know, before COVID, I was remote <laughs> for 10 years. So this that was, was nothing new to me, but yeah, it's been 13 years full-time running the business and it's been a crazy fun ride and it's been up and to the right um, every year. So I guess, I don't know, that's like a quick accelerated version. I thought that getting fired was actually really important because a lot of people think like, the path is pretty linear, and it's not. And sometimes those really uh, what seems at the time like detrimental or huge and imp- like negative things that happen to you can actually be like the impetus for some incredible things um, that you end up doing later down the road down the road. So I, don't know, I, I would love to just see if there's questions or like ways that can be helpful to to all of you because I know it's it's already been like half hour and I'm just like rambling. I'd love to answer like specific questions. Does anybody have anything? Yeah
1: um Connor you want to call them because I don't know their names oh yeah uh Michael all right um I was wondering uh how has your MBA at Warren helped you develop Wall Street Oasis
0: um I think the MBA was super valuable when I was going through it because <laughs> of my classmates there like I I knew I was going to be doing WSO full-time timer, I knew I was gonna be trying to do that. So I was like every class, every entrepreneur class, I'm like, we can use Wall Street Oasis as a guinea pig and <laughs> so we had like data analytics done on it. We had all these people like working on these things, thinking of ideas. Um one of my uh, one of the uh, students in my um in my cohort was uh, he had done like ad sales for like online for like oversight. So he was like, oh, your ads are all wrong. He's like, you need to have banner here, have here, here here, and took completely revamped everything. Um, in terms of helping us do that. And that was important in the early days to allow us to reinvest back in the site with like developers and stuff. So I think it was much more helpful during, after. It's just been more of like, to me, it's been more like, and the reason why I went, it was kind of, it gave me cover. It was like a great insurance policy. Um, allowed me like just additional credibility, you know, having gone to, you know, Rothschild and, and PE. I think it helped with uh, bringing on new mentors into the into the business and stuff like that.
1: Um, I've come across a lot of, uh, I guess, high caliber individuals. I kind of felt the sense that each of them have a different thing about them that characterizes, characterizes them from a common person. What are some traits that you've learned over the time in New York and in Boston that you see separate high caliber people from common? common.
0: Um, I think one of the most important thing is, is like, it's really helpful to become an expert in one area. But then you don't, you're able to like become dangerous in several others. So, like, go really deep in one area. So, for example, like, let's say you're a graphic designer, just that random thing. You want to become like the best, like, become an incredibly, an incredible expert graphic designer. But really, what makes that graphic designer even better and more dangerous and, and dramatically magnifies their earning power is if they also become not necessarily the best, but they're really good at like UX, UX, UI, right? Because suddenly they're able to merge like two somewhat related, but distinct skill sets. So some people are only UI, UX, some people are only graphic design. If they're able to merge that, they're able to kind of see the perspective fully and add a lot more value to whether it's a startup or or anything. And So like, I think they're able to see patterns like that other other people can't see. So like, I think going deep in one area and then but and then getting good at several other Like or very good at several other places can help you see patterns and bring um, the stuff that you learn in the deep expertise to to other areas and kind of accelerate your your value to to any organization or group. Could you talk about your journey just founding a business? I know you you have like sixty employees now, maybe I saw LinkedIn or something, but how it kind of changed over time, going from kind of like a passion project to like a legitimate business. I think everyone knows we're still we're still working on it. Yeah, I mean, I think. well, in the early days, like it, it was interesting because people were always like, oh, you made that leap. It was such like a, I'm super risk averse. I worked in restructuring. I saw so many businesses go bankrupt and like terrible like capital structures. So I was like, I took no capital. I grew it slowly and steadily. I invested every dollar that came in like back into improving the platform. So it wasn't really like, I didn't have to lean on it, right? I didn't have to lean on it right away. I didn't need it to make money right away. I just needed to make sure like, that the users were happy and that um you know we the the product took care of it. like it, it was fun like i was working on it after my after my hours in private equity. i would work on it like 2 3 hours a night and then like 5 hours a day on the weekend like i was doing this for fun like probably 15 20 hours a week cuz it was fun and mostly because it was like your own thing when it's your own thing you don't mind working like the 100 hour weeks when it's for somebody else it, it's really taxing um, and so I think there's certain people have like just that bug of like they can't work for other people. I think I just have that. (laughs) I think I just have that. Like long run, I I can do it. I can take orders, but like I I just feel like at a certain point, if you have enough skills, if you're willing to work hard enough, and you can find, um, you don't even have to find a great idea. You can find a good enough idea um, and execute on it. Most people can be successful at least in like a few years, such that they could replace their salary. And i truly believe that but like you have to have some marketable skills you have to have some idea that you can chase and chase passionately and not get tired on you yeah. um, know that that's a that's a key thing is like a lot of people will choose something because they think it's the quick buck they're like oh crypto is hot last and uh, now it's nfts now it's <laughs> this and they're like they're hopping and you see that on linkedin you're like you know crypto this expert in this uh, nft this and then and i'm like okay great but like there's too many things i'm like you know, they're jumping, right? And so if you can avoid the jumping and just go deep for a while, for many years with that and have, have it be like a side project, even um, while you're like developing other skills at your day job that are somewhat relevant, it can be, uh, it can be a great combination that over time helps you kind of gain that freedom. I guess as a follow-up, it's kind of interesting. Like if you were in our shoes right now, you founded a business, but the business is also like structure around high finance. So like, if you were in our shoes, what would you do? Would you go found a business or would you do high finance? You could do it all over again. It, it depends on the individual, like knowing like where I came from, I think I would still go to banking because I think it still gives you so many like options. Um, it's, it's really like, I didn't have enough technical skills. I, I was coming out of liberal arts college. Like I had a great education. I could write, I could do math. I could do science, like that's all fine, but like. Where are the hard skills? Like, where can I like go into an organization and get plugged? Like, could I be a good salesperson? Maybe, but I would, I'd never been trained in sales. Could I be a good product manager? Maybe, but I didn't have any project management experience. <laughs> so it's like, when you're coming out of school, you're kind of like, if you can get to a place that'll like train you and let you see lots of different parts of business, that's why like these FLDP programs are actually pretty cool because you do these six month rotations and you're like, wow, I really hate that. I definitely don't want that. Or like these co-op programs or summer internships, that's why they're so critical. Because it really gets, lets you see on the inside a little bit. And a lot of stuff is a lot less glamorous than you think, especially at the junior level. Um, they always say shit flows downhill, right? So you'd be you be shoveling shit like for the first few years, <laughs> first few years typically. So um you know, and that's from startup all the way through like the largest corporations in the world. Um, because they're always gonna give the intern or the analyst entry level kind of the the worst gig. So What I always like to say is like, that's fine. You have to do that stuff, but can you be in a group or a culture or somewhere where you're able to see, um, more than that? Do you know what I mean? So you're not just drowning, like, okay, 80% of your job is this, but Hey, 20% you're meeting with clients or 20% you're learning about different deal structures. Hey, 20% you're learning about this other stuff.
1: That's higher value and something to aspire to. Yeah. Just curious where you see Street Oasis going and say like next five, 10 years. I know it started as like a forum website and now there's a lot more emphasis on training and mentorship and things like that. Just curious kind of like what your vision is.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're really excited with uh, WSO Academy and its its growth. Um, it's something that, you know, we've been doing the mentorship for over a decade. We've been doing mock interviews for over a decade. We've had the interview courses for a long time, but I really feel like it's it's taken everything we've done over the years and all the expertise we've built up and really kind of brought it together and something that's really powerful. And so um, I'm just excited for that because it's like, I love the operational side of like trying to figure out, okay, what other edge can we give people? Okay, we're going to do higher view simulations because they're horrible. Higher views, everyone hates higher views. Okay, what else can we do? Oh, we can do these Excel assessments. Oh, okay, what else can we do? Okay, we need to do like uh, use AI for resumes now and AI for LinkedIn. It's like, there's all these stuff. There's always constant improvements. Those are like some of the examples we've recently released for Academy where are like we're always trying to do that and that's the stuff I love like and so I and I feel like there's like there's a huge need especially in non-targets for kids to know early enough um like I got off a call earlier today with um someone from a non-target in like a Canadian school and like his parents were there and they're like what is this why does why does this person need to be like ready freshman year what's going on and I'm like Well, let me tell you, (laughs) I'm like, by in one year, recruiting will be kicking off. And, um, if, if that person plants seeds of networking right now and actually talks to professionals right now, they're at a distinct advantage, no matter what school they're coming from. And that's what I'd say to everyone here is remember that the people hiring you are just people. And at the end of the day, if they like you because you're humble and hungry and you're like trying to, trying to get there early and you're not trying to sound smart, you're just trying to learn, that's the type of people, the curiosity, like genuine curiosity, um, that's the type of people that like other bankers or other finance professionals, they'll, they'll go out of their way to try to help you because they're like, oh, okay, wow, this person like actually has an interest in this. And it's not just like reading off a list of questions. <laughs> and so we try to teach that. We try to teach that throughout everything is like, truly really try to have build a connection and try to do the networking when you don't need it. Right, it's like everyone's like, okay, I'm ready to get a job now. I'm gonna just start networking. Okay, can I have the interview now? I'm like, that's not how it works. <laughs> you should have been doing it six months ago, a year ago, and then that person doesn't feel like you're just like trying to make a transaction with them. Yeah. Um, and so I think that goes for business too. It's like if you're serving people, like give, give, give before you like ask for anything. Um, and I think if you do that, usually things take care of themselves, both in like personal career, uh, entrepreneurship, all this stuff. And so. Yeah, I, don't know, I kind of rambled on and on, but the like, point is, yeah, in terms of like pathways, I see there's just huge uh, huge potential for Academy, um, not just in banking but for other high finance roles. I mean private equity, uh, we're gonna be releasing something called tracks soon. So hedge fund and we have some incredible man- management consultants we could do. Um, and so I really see us kind of going, um, getting really specific um, to the the tracks that people want to go after. Um, sometimes we get people who are like, I don't know what I want to do. They're fresh, but They're like, I didn't, I'm still experimenting. That's fine too. I actually like that because they're less, um, they're less like hyper focused, and we can actually explore. Like, okay, well, what do you like to do? Like, are you good with numbers, or do you like you know sales more? Do you do you like working with people, or do you like kind of being more analytical and going in? So like, we can we can help them kind of find their way there, and then kind of point them in the right direction how to kind of land it. But I think there's massive potential for for that. And then the training business too, I mean, that's something you know we launched our financial modeling evaluation courses, you know five-ish years ago. um and those have really done incredibly well. and it's it's led to us being able to kind of send our faculty into the into uh, investment banks and private equity funds. And I think private equity is especially under is especially undertrained. Uh, the funds like they take these IB analysts who have no had no idea what like a private equity deal process looks like and they're like here here's an IOI or like you do a funds flow and they're like what what do you mean? Like I, I can <laughs> I can do a pitch deck and you know build a three statement model, but I don't know what you're talking about. So you know just seeing a deal from start to finish and training them on that I think is really helpful too.
1: Um so I feel like with IB a lot of the people that come into
0: the field, you know, are going after prestige or maybe even money. For you, what has
1: been like your definition of success and like, have you achieved
0: that so far? Oh, I've definitely achieved it. I've had freedom for 10 years, building my own business. I have three kids. I'm very happy. I'm very blessed. Um, absolutely. Like I couldn't have drawn it up better. <laughs> like, uh, so that, I mean, I think in terms of success, how you, I think everyone should measure success is the ability to choose what you want to do with your time right which is the most scarce resource and not not for people who are like 20 years but like for me I'm like okay wow that those last 10 years went really fast um and so I think yeah I think uh, happiness is kind of how you see it a lot of people think money will solve their problems it doesn't necessarily solve the problems it does help with freedom and flexibility um but your relationships and having balance in life I think is important always and I think it's okay to be imbalanced for a little bit of time, maybe year two when you're, when you're early on to help later on and put you into the right channel to help, you know, earnings trajectories and all that, all that good stuff. Um, but I think eventually balance does matter a lot more for long-term happiness. You'll have like an existential crisis. If you're 20, 23 years old, like in banking at 4 AM, when an MD is calling you up being like, Hey, um, footnote number 123, you need a you missed a comma. I'm not joking about that story. That's literally (laughs) a true story. A managing director was on the phone with me at like 3.45 a.m. telling me like there's a comma missing on footnote one, like page 173 of a deck. So like just realize like when you're in those moments, you're like, what am I doing? (laughs) What
1: am I doing here?
0: It's literally like, so like going from there to where I am like now and just having that like that control over what I want to do and how how I want to grow the business. And I, I think it's great. Um, i think it's great it's it's it does come with challenges um but it's it's not something that i mean i think everything does right if you have a boss there's challenges if you don't have a boss then your customers are your boss <laughs> so either way you're, you're you're you know you're always kind of beholden to somebody like trying to trying to make somebody happy so i think um yeah i think happiness is is oftentimes like how do you achieve it and stuff like that i think it's different for everybody um, but I do think balance is a, is an important word, um, to make sure you don't go too far in one direction. I'm 25, I'm 25. So I can barely hear you. You're, did you say you're 25? Yes.
1: I plan to break it to IB or PE. I think it's still achievable. Like, is it still possible? Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: Uh, do you, it is possible. anything's possible. Number one, <laughs> especially when networking in this country, do you need OPT?
1: Are you OPT? Uh, no, I'm on J1 visa, I'm planning to get a job in Europe, that's fine. What's that? I'm planning to get a job in Europe. In
0: a- Europe. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you're not too, old. so are you, uh, are you a master's student or undergraduate master's master? So yeah, uh, master in finance. Yes. Sort of. Okay. So I think, um, PE is probably, uh, is like a super long shot. Um, uh, at this point, I don't know. What did you do prior to the, to the masters? Uh, I did technology consulting, mostly do analytics, data analytics. Okay, yeah, I think, um, yeah, absolutely. Especially if you go UK, yeah. Uh, if you go UK, but the problem is, you know, you're at a you're at a US based school, so like going to the UK isn't necessarily like easy. And a lot of people will be like, what's this Texas A and M masters? Like, what does this even mean? But so, but so I think in terms of getting into processes, you're gonna have a very hard time landing even first round interviews there. Um, and the banks that you will have a chance at landing are going to be very small shops, but it doesn't mean you can't do it. Like what's stopping you from going to no-name boutique number one, then lateraling up to a slightly larger boutique two years later, then eventually getting to like a Lazard or a Rothschild. If you're really good at your job and you work hard, um, absolutely. Um, I think PE, the problem with PE is there's so few seats and it's so hyper-structured. It's not as if there's as many like private equity funds, like even small micro like microphones of like hundred million, 200 million. There's not as many, right? And those funds tend to have like one investment professional <laughs> managing it or or two, right? Um, and so it, it it becomes much harder. but my my advice to you would be to, yes, absolutely look at the UK, but also look at um, even boutiques around here, try to start building up that profile of a of you know valuation skills, financial modeling skills, try to really feature that on on the CV, whether it's through courses, whether it's through something like Academy. Um, and coming through and kind of getting more structured help, but I think, honestly, um, yeah, anything's possible. Twenty five isn't really the issue. The issue is more like the visa, at least here in the U.S., and the um, the lack of like you know, the, the the non-target masters. Like the masters in finance, by the way, don't go take a ma- don't ever do a master's in finance um, from a non-top three school, um, unless <laughs> unless. And I say this, I say this because a lot of kids will just be like, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. So I'm just going to go do a master's. And it's even worse. Sometimes they'll stack a master's at the same undergrad school that they had. So what have you done right now? You lost your option three or four years later. <laughs> Sorry. I can see the guy in the front being like, oh my God. <laughs> but what you've done in essence is, um, you basically lost your option value two to four years into your career to pull a rip cord and reset number one. Number two, you've added, yes, what's some additional education and masters. It, it's more impressive than uh, the margin for like traditional careers. And it, it's not like the end of, end of the world point is, but like for high finance careers, you're not, you're not putting yourself into the cha- the right channel. Um, I'd much rather you go work at a completely no name place and develop the right skills and network your way into a slightly better place to get you to a top 15 MBA um, or even a top 20 MBA such that they at least have some placement into where you want to go. Assuming you want even, assuming you even want that. If you want FP&A, if you want asset management, if you want other stuff, you don't need, then master in finance, awesome all day. It's definitely going to help you. So it's not as if. My gosh the world's over i'm talking in the context of my little bubble right my little high finance bubbles <laughs> so just remember that like my so if like if you want that though i would never advise somebody like go outside of like mit princeton or, or, or vandy those are like kind of top three master of finance and then out of mba i really would not advise you to spend any money anything outside like the top 20 ish and even outside the top 15 it starts getting sketchy um, in terms of placements if you're looking for the top and high finance roles um so- you know, a lot of places like rank 25th, 50th, whatever. And these, these things will tell you, Oh yeah, we placed five kids at Goldman. Yeah. And we back office <laughs> and back office where they're clearing trades and like, want to like, be like, what did I do? Right. I have all this student debt and now I have to like do this mind numbing job. Um, and so you have to be really careful about like the name, the name brands, um, and these career centers or the, the admissions offices telling you like, Oh, um, you know, be placed here because you know you got to know what division specifically and what groups
1: all right i was wondering uh what has been the most challenging situation uh whenever you're building wso and what did you learn from it oh man there's so
0: 17 years man it's um, <laughs> uh, probably early on just like dealing with um very cheap developers <laughs> <laughs> and trying to like deal with different personalities around, like, I-, I found that engineers, I love engineers. I grew up with like m- all my best friends are engineers, but like, they definitely have quirks and like trying to understand how to communicate with them in such a way that we're like, they they understand what you're doing. And, like, I think probably just early on, like having my first developer who was like working with me full time or part time, I mean, I couldn't even afford him full time um, to help with the site. That was probably just the hardest years because oh. it was years and you, know, the site was probably bringing in. $5,000 total revenue per month, right? So it's like 60000 to work with for the whole year for everything, right? And so um, in that sense, yeah, I think, you know, it, it was it was definitely a challenge because I had so many ideas and I wanted to do so much, but I didn't have the resources to be able to do it fast enough. Um, you also like invest in, in things you think are going to be great. Like as a young entrepreneur, you're like, oh, I'm just going to do this. It's going to be huge. I'm going to... Watch the thing and you don't really like realize, oh, I could have tested that much cheaper and save myself a ton of money or done it a different way. Uh, so that's also take, that takes time and experience, but I'd say probably just early on, it was, it was, it was tough to make progress. That's the downside of not getting funding. What was the process of hiring the right people, trying to create the right culture? What did that side of the business look like over that? Yeah, I think, um, it's definitely evolved like at first like it was very much like hey who do you know like i met i met a guy like in argentina i was like oh you seem like social media oh like that's great yeah come on board and you like social media i think it it started becoming a little bit more of like hey let me work with you for a while first and if we hit it off and like things are going well then you come on board and i think it's really important for like small startups not to especially if you're bootstrapped not to overextend and to try to find the right Few people, because it's really only like a small handful, especially in the early years, that are like really driving the business forward. And if you have someone that's either culturally not a fit because they are, I don't know, too, either too serious or yeah. don't take it seriously enough, um, then it could really just create so many additional headaches on top of what you're already dealing with. Um, I think we've gotten much better at like putting systems in place to make sure that the people we are hiring are, um, are like fit culturally. We even have a, a cultural assessment that we give now, um, <laughs> calling you to see how to make sure it matches our values. Um, and in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of that stuff, I think it's just, you get better and better as you get, as you get bigger in terms of like setting up systems and making sure you're, you're hiring better. At what point did you stop making like the LinkedIn and Instagram posts yourself? Like, what did you stop doing
1: that? Or did you oh still- gosh, a while like a long time ago, <laughs>
0: um, eight years ago. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not responsible for anything on Instagram. <laughs> I cannot be held liable. No, <laughs> we have actually, um, Sarah's our social media manager. She came on actually pretty re- a couple of years ago. Um, she's done an amazing job. And really helping scale our reach, new designs, fun stuff. Uh, she's done an incredible job. It's really kind of exploded in the last few years.
1: I think that's it for the question. Oh, no. we got one more.
0: What? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a freshman engineer major who's
1: into to major in computer science. And I want to go with two. One. So would you say that it'd be better to get my master's by later in my career, or should I try taking a four plus one probably here here every
0: um, you said you want to be a quant and you're a computer science major, but you want to be like a, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah I'm looking major
1: in computer science. But you I'll want to be
0: research. like in finance quant stuff? Yeah. Um, I would still tr- say try to get a master somewhere else. Yeah, oh it's just because of the network. Not because they don't necessarily have a great quant program down there, but just because of the network. Like opening yourself up to a whole new alumni base is just smart, like hedging. Um, and increasing your, you know, the ability to kind of reach out to a whole new set of alum and then be more, much more likely to respond to you. Connor can attest to this, right? Connor is like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, yeah. In terms of like, you know, conversion rates we can talk about that. And that's interesting. You look at like alum, typically when you send a LinkedIn connection request, you're going to get rejected about 70% of the time, but that means 30% of the people will probably accept you from there getting the connection request from LinkedIn and instead of messaging them on LinkedIn, bring it over to email. When you send an email saying, Hey, thanks so much for the connection request. I'd love to, love to chat sometime in the next few weeks. If you, if you have a few minutes, right. Then what do you do? Most people just stop or they'll follow up once, you know, you need to actually follow up once then follow up again, three weeks later, then follow up again, three months later, if you do that, you end up, you you end up able to actually get on anywhere between usually three to four phone calls every single week, consistently with people in the industry you're targeting. And that right there, what I just told you alone is probably the most highly correlated skill to how far each and every one of you will go in your careers. That one skill, just being able to consistently follow up and reach out to new people year after year after year. And then staying in touch with that network because uh, what happens is um, people who are more introverted are at a huge disadvantage when it comes to career, Career trajectory. I had a I had a guy in W Academy that was like literally he went through the whole thing and I'm like, what's going on? Why are you only at like 120 connections? Like, what are you doing? And he's like, Well, I just, I just why? Why do we have to do this? And I'm like, it doesn't matter why. I'm like, point is like, you're not gonna get like Ivy League, good GPA, at a job that's like a real estate development shop, he's making good money, but wants more. And I'm like, if you want more. You can't be in your little bubble. You have to get out there and actually meet people in the, in the job. She's like, but I am. I talked to my friend's sister. And I'm like, weak connections are more powerful than your 10 strong connections. Weak connections. You guys know all of this, right? you read the articles. How powerful weak connections are actually. No, you don't know this. Okay. So there's been plenty of studies that show actually what's responsible for the job. You getting a job offer are not your like the people right surrounding you, like your family and your friends and your cousins and your. Best friends. It's the weak connections. It's the friend of the friend. It's the friend of the friend of the friend, right? It's how many of those weak connections do you have? So that like just reinforces even more. Like, why wouldn't you just establish a ton of weak connections? It does you know if you can make a lot more of them stronger? Great, that's great. Develop real meaningful friendships, even better. But the point being, like, you need to have a lot of weak connections to be able to hear about the jobs that are never posted on the job board. If you, guys, if you guys are one click applying on LinkedIn all day, one click applying on Indeed all day, sorry. That's a black hole. You're going like 99.6% of those, like never get a response. So, uh, you know, you can do it that way and feel busy and feel good about yourself, or you can actually spend a little bit of time, get over your fear of talking to people and have like 10 times more success. So we'll leave it at that. I think that's a good way to end it because that's probably the most important lesson anyone could take away from this. <laughs> um anything else guys any any final things, connor should we end it uh are there any more questions can i shoot one else yeah just give like general advice for any freshman who doesn't have like any clue what they want to do not even like i want to go into IB. how can i do it but just who like doesn't know what they want to do they kind of like finance but how do they figure out like, which way to go I would read a lot. There's a lot of free resources online. Be like, hey, take some of these like career assessment type things of like, what's your personality like? Just try to do that. I mean, it shouldn't take you. I think people think there's going to be some sort of epiphany that comes to them. Like sophomore year, it's not going to (laughs) happen. Like almost never. It's not like, oh my gosh, now I know what I want to do because I'm 19 years old instead of 18 years old. Like it's gradual. Like you learn about yourself. You're going to change through your 20s. So like what I say is like, Try to kind of just find something that you think, okay, this aligns somewhat with my personality with what, what I'm good at and what I'm interested in and just go for it and just start, start kind of focusing and going for it. Cause if you wait till junior, senior year, it becomes harder to like get the experience that makes you competitive for the top goals there. And so like, that's, that's all I'd say is like for people who are, you know, struggling in that search, like it's okay to, to not be sure it's okay to pivot is it then that's the reason it's great to have the mba to to pull the ripcord when you realize oh i made a mistake i actually want to go over here um, that's why you want to have that reset option um, so just just remember like the first job out of undergrad is not like what's going to define you and your job overall it doesn't define you in general if you're a good person or not so, yeah i think we'll leave it at that
1: that thank you so much patrick thanks everybody
0: And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.